Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live at the Politics Festival, King's Place, London. Please welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Hello, King's Place. Go give yourselves a big whoop for having come along. Uh, exactly, very good. You are such a rabble-rouser. Yeah, no, exactly, I am. So, shall I tell you my reason to be cheerful? Sure. It concerns something that you've never done, which is canvassing. Correct? What, you, whenever you say this to me, you make me feel like I'm a freak that I've never canvassed. <laughs> how, how many people here have canvassed? Yeah, you're a freak. I mean, it is a pun. Uh, <laughs> it's less than 50%. It was unanimous. Right. Uh, for those listening at home, it was unanimous. Now, this is, it, also, <laughs> it also concerns the 2015 general election, which didn't go so well, as you may know. Dear Mr. Miliband, I'm going to a wedding of my best friend Richard next weekend. This just arrived, by the way. And believe it or not, he met his soon-to-be bride when he was out door-to-door campaigning for your 2015 election campaign. He knocked on Rachel's door to persuade her to vote Labour, ended up charming her so much that not only did she agree to vote for you, very good, she also agreed to a date. Years of bonding over social justice later, they are now getting married. I mean, isn't that good? I feel like something, amidst the sort of rubble, something good did come out of the 2015... Uh, election campaign. Now, Jamie, the friend, asked, would it be possible for me to send a signed photo? I mean, never mind a signed photo. I've asked to officiate at the wedding because I think it would uh, only only be appropriate. You could carve an enormous stone with their nails on it. (laughs) 
That's what you get the big bucks for. <laughs> now, what is your reason to be cheerful? Uh, mine, I mean, I wish I'd gone first because I was just going to say I found a shop that serves my favorite ice cream flavor. No, that's, that's profound. Salty licorice. Wow. Mm. Yeah, you just, you just try it. It's probably not ethical to name the shop. Oh, go on. Uh, Scandinavian Kitchen on right. Great Titchfield Street. Jeff has a thing for Scandinavia, so uh, it, it's absolutely consistent. And this is a very particular Finnish ice cream, and uh, the, 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 the Finnish aspect kind of taps into what we're talking about today because everyone always goes on about Finland. It's a very good segue. Having the best education system in the world. Yep. And we're, we're talking we're about education. education. So very shortly, we're going to bring on uh, Melissa Ben and Holly Rigby. Melissa Ben uh, is chair of something called Comprehensive Futures. Uh, she has also uh, written a book, which I have read an advanced copy of, which is coming out in September, called Life Lessons, which is about the idea of a national education service, sort of akin to a national health service. And we want to talk about what that means and what it means needs to change in education and will obviously involve Melissa, but also the audience. And also, I'm delighted we've got Holly Rigby, who is a teacher at an uh, inner London academy. Uh, she's been teaching for five years, and she's working on a national education service part-time at King's College as a researcher. So we're going to talk to her about what it would mean for her, why she thinks it's important. And then we will be joined by one of our top comedians who's had a stratospheric couple of years. She's going to be coming on to pitch us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We will be joined by Ashlyn B. So, please everybody uh, welcome Melissa Ben and Holly Rigby. It's great that you've both joined us. Melissa, I had the pleasure, I was saying, to the audience of reading your book and I, I thoroughly recommend it. When people can start pre-ordering it, they should. Tell us a bit about the idea of the National Education Service. And I know it's a big sort of question, but the argument of your book. The idea of the NES, I think, was first floated in the modern era by Jeremy Corbyn, to be fair, when he became elected in 2015. And I was interested in the idea. And so I started to think, well, what would an NES look like? And what are the main principles of it? Also, I'm quite interested in the system that we have now, which I think in many ways... I know we're here to be cheerful and have reasons to be cheerful, but there's quite a lot of things not to be cheerful about in the current system. There's a lot of stress around exams. I don't know if people in the audience have been reading about incredible levels of stress about the new exams that Michael Gove um, put in place. And people are obviously really struggling with those. Teacher recruitment and retention is a real problem and so on. So the idea of the NES is to solve that and also I wanted to look ahead I'm quite interested in bigger and bolder ideas for the 21st century I know we're in it but we're kind of we still got a bit to go you know there's a lot in politics and it's not to pick on you Ed or anyone but there's a lot of tweaking in politics and I am the chair Same of to Jeff, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah yeah and there I am the chair of you you said is it comprehensive futures no it's just one future which is quite enough I can assure you when you're campaigning on it but you know I go and see a lot of MPs and what I've noticed is and you can confirm this the MPs are always quite concerned about their constituencies and what's going on in their constituencies and there's very few people people who were thinking about the system as a whole and actually Michael Gove dislike him as I did politically I've only met him once personally so what are the big ideas of the National Education Service I mean obviously it echoes the NHS in some ways you know that idea of national you know service and so on and I, I like that because I think all you know it's the 70th anniversary of the NHS this weekend and you know for all its troubles we cherish it and we love it so much 
but we don't necessarily love our education system so much, and we, we, might, we might talk about that. The key principles of the National Education Service are that it is genuinely free. So I, I wanted to investigate how could we make it genuinely free. The second is that it is lifelong. Because look, at the moment, we've got a system which is just concentrating on the school years. And if you fail that, and Holly will know, then, you know, it's over at 18, 19. We're all going to live to 85. So we need a system that provides something more substantial all the way through. And the third principle, I think, there's equality, which is very important. But enjoyment... And I think, you know, if you look at schools and systems that are doing better than us, they've got so much more creativity, so much more emphasis on communication, teamwork, all those things. And I think we've got a system that's, I always say it's not fit for the 20th century, let alone the 21st in many ways. I'm not sure it doesn't really belong in the 19th century in many ways. And I think the best global systems are just way ahead of us. So I wanted to inject some of that thinking into my book. Great. Um... Holly, you, you obviously teach four days a week, um, but, but you're also working on the National Education Service. Bring together those two perspectives for us and tell us sort of how it feels in schools at, at the moment, and, and I know this isn't a comment on the particular school you work at, but just in general, and what the National Education Service might bring. I think the, the reason that I'm so excited about the NES is because we've had such a narrow vision of what education is for a really long time, which is just that, um, you know, the idea of social mobility, let's just get the best and the brightest and, you know, get them and make them successful. Um, and it hasn't even been successful on its own terms, right? We still have massive um, inequality. And this is a chance to say, what kind of citizens do we really want? What is our vision for, for, a, for a future society? And what role does education play in that? And I think we have multiple crises in, in the world now we've got inequality you know automation an aging population a housing crisis I want my young people to have the skills and the knowledge to be able to solve some of those problems and I want adults to be able to solve those problems as well you know we say that young people are the future but the NES is about saying that every child and every adult matters and I think for me that's that's the big break with what we've had recently I think which makes it so exciting and what would change? I mean, for you, Melissa said a little bit about what would change from her point of view, but what, what, what's the change that you would want this, this thing to bring compared to what you're doing now, day-to-day, as a teacher, and so on? Um, all of it needs to change. So it's quite hard to identify. Yeah. But what I would say is that teachers need to be leading the change. And because we know what needs to happen in our classrooms. And so you need to sort out teachers' jobs. You know, we now have a situation where teachers are working the longest hours in Europe. It's common for um, primary and secondary school teachers to be working 50, 55 hours a week. And school leaders to be working 60, 70 hours a week. And really badly paid, you know, so just like the rest of the public sector. So the first thing we need to do is we need to address workload. We need to have a strong trade union presence back in schools. Um, you know, it's very well covered by trade unions, but the power's been taken out of them by the academy system, by the free school system. Um, and so we need to make sure that we've got teachers leading the four, but they need time. They need more time to plan creatively, to plan exciting things. You know, it's very easy to feel a bit robotic at the moment in the classroom because you just have to get through your day there's so much pressure on you there's so much pressure on the kids um, and teachers just need some space to breathe um, so that we can start thinking about well what are the solutions going to be to these the problems that we have and you mentioned that we stack up poorly against other countries so whereabouts do we sit and who's doing a good job of it 
um, there, there's a very interesting book called Cleverlands by Lucy Crean, which looks at not the five top performing systems, but five of the top performing systems. And uh, we, it, they have various things in common, which, which we don't do. Um, they, they educate or train their teachers for much longer than we do, and they give them much more autonomy in the classroom. We tend to do the opposite. You know, we mentioned Teach First earlier. Teach First is a program everybody salutes, but it's based on the idea that you have a few weeks learning in the summer and then you go straight into the classroom. And we now have, I think, 16 or 17 routes into teaching, whereas we used to have just one or two. So I think that's something. The other thing, which is really interesting for a conservative and divided and class-ridden country like our own, is that the top-performing systems do not segregate, stream, or even track their students until 14 or 15. And we tend to think, to have a good system, you have to decide who the winners are, identify them early, and educate them separately, either in private schools or so on. But actually, the really good systems have this idea of universal education educability that all pupils can succeed and you have to find a way to support all of them in different ways to succeed more and that is quite a radical idea for the English you're looking at your pulling your ears if you don't like the idea of that. Melissa knows me very well you can tell that when I'm pulling my ear no I, 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 um, I don't I suppose I'm thinking and we had this discussion just before we came on just before we get on to what needs to change, I mean, talk to us about what's happened in the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, I feel like there are some positive things that have happened. So if I think about the London Challenge, which you know really embarked on big funding and attempted improvement of inner London schools, my sense is, just anecdotally, that it has had a posit- did have a positive effect. I mean, what do we- maybe, maybe one way to put it is, what did we learn from what went right? Well, I would say that the point about the London Challenge was that quite a lot of money was put into London schools. So I think on average, it's four to 6,000 a year spent on state school pupils. But I think in London, it's eight to 9,000. So that, there's that marginal difference. That, so that helped. Um, the London Challenge, for those who don't know it, and there was a national challenge as well, was where schools work together locally to support each other. So really good heads in a local authority area would go and help a school that was struggling so it was much more collaborative rather than competitive so that was the second thing and and the third thing and I'm not sure Holly agrees with me here is that the academy and free school experiment I think has brought a lot of problems to our system and a lot of fragmentation but it was really the first moment that the conservative party moved away from return of the grammars as the answer and actually moved to having good local schools, uh, to believing in, in good local schools. Now, there were all sorts of problems about what they think a good local school is. But, of course, Theresa May, being a more traditional Tory, has come back with, she wants to have grammars back. And I, I think that's just absolutely disastrous. But as, does that answer your question? It does. Now, let's talk about the different aspects of this, because one key question, which you sort of hinted at in your opening answer, is when people learn and what they learn. So, so in other words, what kind of curriculum are people learning and how, when does learning take place? T- talk a bit about that, because that is clearly an, ele- an element of the National Education Service, isn't it? Well, there's lots of elements. I mean, to go back to Jeff's point about what are other systems doing well, one of the things they're doing is delaying the onset formal learning and having more 
Play-based sounds, you know, again, we don't like the idea of play in this country. We think that means you're not doing what, you know. But actually, play-based learning sets you up ready to do other kinds of learning. Starting school at six or seven. Starting school at six or seven. And then you find that actually um, young people, children who do that, catch up really quickly. And they've got the right attitude towards learning. And there's also studies that show then there's less attention deficit disorder and all the things that plague a lot of children who are set to formal learning too early. So that's one thing. I mean, your answer, when does learning happen? I mean, it should happen, you know, it should be happening all the way through. And also it should be intrinsic, shouldn't it, that the motivation comes from the student. I know I want my children, when my children are at school, they're now post-university. I, want, I loved it when they came back and they were really enthused about something rather than coming back and saying, I didn't get as good a mark as X or Y. You know, I mean, that, that's you know, a way of... I mean, I'm not against exams. No, no, sure. But just in the context of this lifelong learning, one of the things you say in your book is, understandably, we have a massive focus on higher education as in universities, yeah. but we've had much less focus... Yeah on the 50% who don't go to university, adult education, all of that. Just say something about that. I mean, uh, the the funding slashes to further education are just incredible. I think it's cut from 50 to 15%. The same adult education, which was quite a thriving thing in the sort of 60s and 70s, is now virtually non-existent. And I just think that's a complete waste of talent. And also, I think it really doesn't help those who've fail at school the first time which tends to be poorer children and so I think we need a new infrastructure and a new dynamism about further education which is also technical education and learning for the post 21 period yeah I I would completely agree and I think um I mean if you just have to look at for example in the prison system we have now the average age um a reading age of a prisoner is 11 years old so you know that's telling us that something is happening in school and people are you know ending up in that situation and we need remedial kind of education we need opportunities people to have a second chance at education um whatever context they're from and 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 for that to be throughout life I think that we have an incredibly um isolated older population in society now we've got an aging population um, and we should have these hubs of learning and community where people can come and at any stage of their life learn new things and, and learn collaboratively I mean I'm incredibly lucky my, my grandmother who I've t- told Melissa about before is an amazing example of this like she working class um, daughter of a bus, bus driver and she got a place to go to university when she was 18 but she couldn't go because her mother fell ill and it was you know, her greatest regret that she, that she never went to university. Um, so when she was 80, she went and studied a history degree at the Open University and she oh, graduated amazing. from her history degree at the age of 85. That is amazing. And I was there at her graduation. It was one of the How most... like amazing. In, yeah, extraordinarily. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> So, you know, it just, it just shows that people have that desire, wow. I think. And I think that, you know, that, that's, that's for me what the vision of the NES is. It, it's people flourishing at whatever stage and whatever age of life they're in. And just from the point of view of um, uh, your, you as a teacher, I know you're teaching English. I mean, one of the things that we've covered on the podcast before is this question of the extent to which creativity is being sucked out of the curriculum. So, you know, it seems to me one of the worst things that has happened is that you know, Britain is actually excels in these creative subjects, arts and so on. We've got, you know, 
brilliant sort of, in, sort of industrial strength in this area, but also it's a massive important, important part of the character of our country, and yet this is all being cut back. In yeah. state schools, it's, been, state cut schools, back, it's yeah. been cut back. I mean, what is your... Not just cut back, but, but sort of diminished as mm. a, by the EBAC and so on. Just, yeah. just talk a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the curriculum is, is incredibly narrow now. I mean, Michael Gove's idea of the best that's been thought and said, but apparently that is text that children just don't like at all. Um, you know, I, I think that we should study Shakespeare, absolutely. But, you know, why cut of Mice and Men? I don't know if anyone ever did it at school, but, you know, when Lenny gets shot, you know, how many times have you cried, you know, and uh, reading that bit of the book? And we just don't have that. We don't have that text that are chosen because children love them now. And so we get a whole generation of young people who are just completely turned off from reading and 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 it and it and it is to do the reason that drama music the arts have been diminished in value is because we don't put funding into them and you know in, in middle class schools they don't cut the art teacher they get they get contributions from you know the families there and art still continue and it just means that my young people in my school you know, we do the best that we can, but they just don't have access to the same opportunities. And like you said, you know, England, the UK has always led the way in the creative arts, um, but it's still being dominated by a very, very narrow elite because our system is, our school system is just reproducing the inequality in wider society, um, and, and that needs to change. The other aspect of what you said, Melissa, in your opening was about the fragmentation of the system. Yeah. Academies, free schools comprehensive, uh, sorry, um, uh, they're, they're, what are they called? I've, I've now forgotten what they're called. The state maintained, sta- maintained, maintained schools. schools. And obviously the private school system, which is a big part of the British educational landscape. Yeah. You've got proposals in your book on both aspects of this. Just talk a little bit to the yeah, audience I mean, about that. You know, in a, there's fragmentation of the state system. I mean, I've been observing and researching and been interested in education for 20 years, and I still don't think I've quite got a handle on all the different kinds of schools and the different legal powers they have and their relationship to each other. And it is, at the, at the simplest level, it's just absurdly complicated. You know, why can't you just have secondary schools that have the same... Um, the sort of same resources, uh, the same same freedoms, freedoms, the same responsibilities and so on. But that's probably because, you know, if you look at the history of our system, it's been a series of negotiations with the church, with... um, you know, newer faith groups and so on. So there's, it's, it's a history of settlements, really. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's unnecessarily complicated. I think the private sector is a, is a, is a different question. Just you know, before we get to the private sector, what would you do about the fragmentation in the state sector? Well, I think I would I'd get clever people who know about... Uh, I do talk. Uh, I do mention some studies done by lawyers who have looked at the legal status of schools and suggested ways that you can simplify the governance and admissions and things of schools. But you also so, want some accountability back to... Not to local authorities yeah. or I mean, some... Again, to go back to Jeff's question about what, how do the people who do it well do it, they all tend to have local, they're called school boards. If you look at Japan, you look at Canada, you look at the famous Finland, they do have local, not control, because control's not the right word, but local support systems for their schools. Whereas we tend to have either Michael Gove, as was, or Nick Gibb, who's still there, dictating literally the curriculum from the DfE, or we have these sort of semi-private actors who've come in, businessmen, um, you know, people who want to set up football academies, uh, faith groups, journalists like Toby Young, setting up schools. And 
you know, I'm not against people being involved in the education, but I think we need some kind of democratic but, but, but also, just to... I know you, uh, you know, MPs are guided by their local examples, but <laughs> the moment the oversight of local schools, at least in Doncaster, is done by the Regional Schools Commissioner, yeah. who's just appointed by government. Yeah. So there's yeah. no proper... And it's a very weak system of yeah. accountability... Yeah. And that's presumably part of the problem here, is you've got hundreds of these schools, free schools, academies, and yeah. so on, and who's really... Yeah, who's... So, so you've got two lines of accountability, if you want to get technical about it. You've got the DfE, regional schools commissioners, who are new, newly appointed, there's eight of them, and I think people still don't know what they're quite doing, and the academies and free schools. And then you have local authorities and maintained right. schools. So okay. it's a mess. So it's a mess. The point is it's a mess. And yeah. then go on, talk about the private sector, because look, the private sector... There's no question it has an impact on the whole of the British education system, doesn't it? Yeah, it has a huge impact. And on the whole, it's been 7% of the population have always been educated privately. It dipped to 4 and 5%, I think, in the 60s. But the private sector has reinvented itself. It's even reinvented itself to call itself the independent sector. I, I... and, and public schools. Now, I don't think there's anything public about private education, and I think let's keep that word for ourselves. And I prefer it to state, actually. I think public, we need good public schools for us. And independent, well, why are they they're independent of most of society's problems? So, you know, maybe that's why they call it that. Um, so I'm... But, you know, you'll know this, Ed, from having been leader of the Labour Party, vested interests are very, very difficult to tackle. And we are told they're very, very well organised, the private schools, and they do what they do very well, not surprisingly. I mean, the top schools are charging 40000 a year, and the day schools are charging 14000 a year. So they're spending far more than our state schools are on education. But you have a specific proposal in your book. Well, I have a number of proposals. One of them is, in a time of austerity, can we really justify giving public money to support the education of the more affluent. Which is the VAT relief and so on. Which is charitable status, business rate relief and so on. So I think there's an argument for saying, I don't think you can take away the legal right to educate your child separately, but I think you could argue in a time of austerity that we need that money for our classes, for our nurseries, for our teaching assistants. Can I just tell you a very interesting thing that happened in one... uh, a Somerset area, I think it's called Taunton Dean, they have three private schools around them and they were having to cut their classes, cut their arts provision and they noticed that they were thousands and thousands they were giving in business rate relief to their private schools and they initiated a conversation with the private schools about whether this was fair. And I, I think that's one way to go, is to start to talk about the distribution of resources and to kind of get people to realise that this isn't fair and this is part of the problem. But, but also you want to, towards the end of your book, you say, why not say that 25% of private school intakes, I thought this was a really interesting idea, 25% of the private school intake should be non-selective, as I understand yeah. it, kids on free school meals from the poorest areas. In other words... Okay, and let's children. really integrate the private and state system. Yeah. So uh, there's, yeah, so that you know, children in care who are the, have the most difficult time. I mean, whether the private schools would ever accept that is another question. But I, you know, it's a form of redistribution that who can argue with that we take our children who have the least and we say we, the state, will f- pay for them to have, you know, 
this, this education in another sector. And the third thing I would do is contextual university admissions because I think for a lot of parents, going to a private school is about getting into the top universities. But I think universities ought to accept that a student from... Uh, you know, a poorer area who gets perhaps slightly lower A-levels has possibly, almost certainly, a lot more potential and that universities ought to recognise that in their admissions policies. The fragmentation of the system, you see that from the ground level? Yeah, well, I I work in um, an academy, in a a big academy chain. Um, I've actually only ever worked there, so um, I I can only speak from my experience. Um, And what we do know about academies, um, not so much under New Labour, but certainly under Michael Gove, is that they were explicitly, these new academies set up to to kind of um, destroy teachers' working conditions and pay because academies can set their own conditions, their own pay, so they don't have to follow what the national requirements are that you would in a maintained school. So you find, particularly in the academy system, um, teachers working longer hours um, and, and, and also being there's a lot of trade union victimisation. So, you know, from my own example, I'm a trade union rep. I've had posters ripped down. You know, I've been told that I can't even talk about the union in school. Um, and, and this is, you know, this is an extreme example but ultimately it's leading teachers particularly in these schools that are filled with teach first teachers with newly qualified teachers um, that you, you don't have the experience that you get in maintained schools um, and it's just in, incredibly incredibly challenging and, and we need to do something about it absolutely whether it's going back to local authority I think we need to think really carefully about that because that's not to say there weren't problems with the local authority schools um, you know when they were there in the 80s but there are some simple kind of interim measures that you can take in the meantime CEO of academies should not be should not be earning three hundred fifty thousand pounds when the teaching assistant in my classroom is earning twenty thousand pounds. You know, um, you need to have teachers with the same paying conditions across maintained schools, and you need directly elected boards who oversee these schools, even if they're academy schools. Still, you can't have this selection of people. Not you know, hardly any parents, hardly any teachers, hardly any staff governors oversee, overseeing those things with an aim to, in the long term, I think phasing out free schools academy schools i want to abolish private schools i think that melissa's argument um about phasing them out is a good one i think those are good interim measures but my long-term vision is that you cannot have a society where you have an elite being educated differently from everybody else because that has led to a situation where you have a third of british prime ministers educated in one school in eton all of the top professions that make decisions in this country hasn't gone well in the last couple of years i'd say it hasn't (laughs) well yeah but you know i just think that that we've got to make the argument this is the time for radical vision and i think that melissa's interim measures are important but we need to be saying that this cannot continue this inequality it is worth pointing out that finland did phase out their um Finland in the 70s did phase out their private schools and selective schools and then jumped to have the best system in the world and the most equal system in the world. Just before we go to the audience, I just want to ask you this question about cross-party. Yeah. Because one of the things you do say in your book is that you, you, you sort of hint that you, and this obviously sounds quite challenging given the agenda you've talked about, you want this to be cross-party because that part of the reason, part of the thing that education in Britain has suffered from is sort of politics chopping and changing all the time. Just, just say a bit about that. Well, I think what I, what I talk about is what I see as an emerging consensus around a number of issues. So I think there's a general agreement now that there's a real problem with the way that we uh, pay teachers, treat teachers. I mean, 
that it's become part of a consensus. I think there's a consensus that the academy system is in, to use the words of um, somebody earlier this week, in free fall. I think there's a sense that we failed totally to deal with technical and vocational education. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a feeling that going back to the 11 plus is not the answer. So there's a four issues where I think a, a lot of reasonable people of different political uh, persuasions might come on board because like, you know politics is a, a consensual art I mean you do, you do I think a, you know a government that wants to put in place the beginnings of an NES has to be quite bold and not just tweak but I think you also want to bring as many people with you as you can sounds good shall we go to the audience yeah what's, what's your name uh, I'm Jack hello Hi, Jack. Um, hi, Jack. Hi. I guess my, my question was um, really about the history of it. So I guess, you know, the original project of comprehensive education, um, the sort of Wilson government stuff and uh, the open university was the idea that every child mattered, differentiation was bad, um, life, learning should be lifelong, we have the open university. How is it sort of different in, from that, um, this idea of a national education service? And also, I guess my other question was, should we actually be going back to Atlee and nationalising education, so abolishing private schools, because that's the really radical bit, you know, in the creation of the National Health Service was the yeah. abolition of private hospitals. Talk about the history of this, yeah. because it is interesting, that there was a, because there was the National Health Service set up in '48. Yeah, because if you look at the origin of the two systems, I think it tells us a lot about where we are now. So the NHS was set up in 1948, and, you know, I think one of the reasons that it is, it is so loved and cherished despite all the problems is because it was a system that was set up for all to use. Um, I think there is something different between health and education in the sense that nobody asks you, it doesn't matter quite where you had your hip operation, what hospital, as opposed to where you went to school. There's something about education that is identity related that, that health is not. But if you look at the setting up of, um, well, the establishing of the right to free universal secondary education in 1944, a bit earlier, the Butler Act, that was based on the idea of grammars and secondary moderns. And I think that started a divide that has dogged us ever since. And if you, we've still got a Prime Minister who, wants, who thinks that was a great idea and wants to bring it back. But the other missed opportunity of that post-war period was to fold the private schools, which were weak in the 1930s, into the new system. And if they... If the Labour government, or if Parliament at the time, had done that, we might be looking, you know, had chosen a, what they used to call multilateral rather than comprehensive system, multilateral schools and a universal system, we wouldn't be where we are now. Um, do you want to answer the other one? Is, well, how different is this? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I, I don't think we should talk necessarily about going back to anything. I think we need to be future orientated. You know, we need to be um, putting forward a vision for what that looks like. And I think that faith schools have been part of our system since, you know, the kind of Victorian era. They were the first church schools were the first kind of form of education we had. And they've stayed in our system. And actually, I don't think there's a place for them anymore. I think that um, I think that I have every respect for anyone to practice their religion and, and, and practice their faith. But that needs to be an integrated system. And I think 
that that's also another radical thing to do because there's a lot of vested interest in, in keeping those going. So I think we need to be looking forward because I think that there's not that much in my opinion, in the past, which is good, you know, even even in, you know, this sort of celebrated period of compre- comprehensivization, you had black and working class children in bottom sets and being taught very, very badly. You know, we had racism, we had sexism at the heart of our education system. So we need to be saying, you know, we're not going back, we're, we're going to the future, I think. But can, I, can I actually say something about yeah. that, which is, I think, I would have a take slightly different view. I think comprehensive reform of the 60s and 70s was the most radical thing this country ever did. But I think we've learnt about, uh, learnt a lot about who we ignored in that period, who we neglected. And also, if you look ahead, there's a really interesting, interesting book, Alex Beard, Natural Born Learners, where he goes around the world looking at really future-oriented systems. And it is based on this principle that every child matters, but also every child's a kind of genius, and it's making it, it's making it happen through completely different kinds of teaching approaches and so on. So I think we need to take a principle that has been really badly... You know, the word comprehensive, if you look it up, is associated with all kinds of negative things. Actually, it's a really exciting idea. We may have to move and use another term, vocabulary being very important in politics, but we've got to move it on now and and learn what we've learned from the past. There's a lady who's got a microphone, and then maybe we can get a microphone to the lady, to the lady next to her as well, and then the lady at the front. Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, Hi, Sarah. So this is, I guess, is more of an observation, but I've recently finished like a four-year term as a primary state school governor in Islington, North London. And, you know, looking at the kind of reduction in the creative and the creative arts and just general creativity in state schools, at the same time, the North London private sector is recognised that it's actually the creatives who are going to be not automated in the future. Like they're approaching everything now, like they're approaching their science and their maths teaching as like creativity because they're kind of the rote learning that Gove has kind of brought in is the first thing that's going to be automated. The people who can, you know, just like, uh, you know, just rote learn and have no creativity, that's where the robots are going. It's going to be like everyone who looks at things creatively and can design stuff who are the future. So preparing like, you know, preparing... Children for the Future is part of the NES. It's kind of creativity is key and it's being totally cut. There's no kind of, there's no, you know, kind of acceptance of that in the state sector. Great. Sorry, lady over there and then the lady down here. Yeah. Hello. Um, What would you say to somebody who, and I'm actually one of these people, so this is me being a bit cheeky, um, who is interested in becoming a teacher? Um, Is that just a bad idea? What's your name? My name's Esther. Esther, I think it's a very good idea, but but go on. Um, And because obviously what you hear from even practising teachers at the moment is that it's, you know, incredibly difficult, it's never been so difficult. I mean, is it still a good idea? Is it still a feasible thing to do? Or if not, is there a time in the future when it will be? I would really love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, and let's take the question down here and then we'll come back to to the panel. Hi, so... Something that I've noticed... What's your name, sorry? Steph. Hi, Steph. So something that I've noticed a lot of is that a school tends to kind of um, mirror the area around it. And to your point, Holly, I really agree with the idea of um, abolishing private schools being a really kind of noble aim. But something that would concern me is that if you abolished private schools, you would find the wealthiest people all converging to a similar area where there is a good school and you'd end up with an almost kind of ghettoisation of the country. So I'm quite intrigued to hear as 
what you would do to stop that. Really good question. So, so creativity, squeezing out creativity, should Esther become a teacher? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and Steph's question, which I think is really good about the sort of, you know, postcode, sort of postcode decision, decisions that people are already making, frankly. Yeah, two fantastic questions. Um, on being a teacher, yes, be a teacher, absolutely. The only way that our education system is going to change is if good people enter the classroom. And it is still, you find subversive teachers everywhere. It's a very difficult job, but you can be your own subversive teacher. And young people are just extraordinary. It's, it's, it's the best job in the world, which is why we need to defend it. It's why we need a new educational settlement. So get into the classroom, you know, change, change it for those young people, but also be part of that change. And I think it's a great question as well about about admissions this is already a problem this is not just about abolishing private schools you know good comprehensive schools are surrounded by very very high property prices so we still have selection by by house by house price at the moment so for me i think you need to take admissions back to local authorities so that so that schools basically can't decide through covert selection who goes to those schools because if you get an oversubscribed school and the school gets to choose who comes in you know because there are too many students then they can do what they like so you know how does that happen? What, 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 what does yes. that look like, that covert selection? Well, they interview. So what will happen is that you come in to do a, um, you know, it's just a sort of induction and you get to see the school and tour the school. And then, and then often the, the families are interviewed. I mean, I, I, you know, you don't want to be conspiratorial about it, but it is an absolute fact that there are, there's already ghettoization. Working class children go to schools that are underperforming. Middle class children are in schools that are highly performing. This is already happening so at who, the moment. So who gets to scrutinise that then well if you're in a maintained it's very weak like if you're if you're in a maintained school it should be the local authority but i i live and work in southwark there is not a single maintained school in that borough it is all academies and it was all free schools and there is absolutely no oversight of that process whatsoever so i'm in favor of a lottery system so you would have um you know parents applying for a, a variety of different schools and then a lottery would be done and you'd have mixed communities genuinely mixed comprehensive school communities you know we need that right now this was tried in brighton at one point it's exactly. It's, it is being tried in Brighton, and it's 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 not necessarily always popular. Just with explain parents how it would work. So the, the uh, test me now. So the Sorry. basics are that because um, you still want parents to have an element of choice. So parents kind of apply for a broad uh, range of schools, and then the schools have to take a certain proportion of certain types of students. So a certain proportion of free school meal students, a certain mm. proportion of students who are based on distance, a certain proportion who are looked after children, so that you get this variety. Now there are problems because people are further away sometimes from their their, their kind of nearest school. Um, but, you know, there's lots of people who travel long... If you live in Penzance, lots of people travel long distances to school. I think that the value that we'd get from having a comprehensive school system far outweighs the kind of issues that you might have with, with a lottery system, from my opinion. Yeah, and I think the other answer to it is that there will be areas where it's mainly disadvantaged populations. What you do is invest more in those. And so that Which you're the pupil premium it. is trying to yeah, do. Yeah, the pupil premium does to an extent. But if you look at the problem of teacher recruitment and retention, it's massive in areas like the coastal areas where it's hard to find, it's hard to get teachers to go there and hard to get them to stay there. And there is a problem. I mean, you say that teaching is a great job. A lot of teachers leave after a certain period. I mean, today, just out of interest, I googled starting salaries for key jobs. And it's, uh, teachers were by far the lowest. So it's, I mean, it depends if you're in London, you get more because you get London waiting. But I looked up, uh, for my own interest, vets, pilots, dentists, 
and teachers, and teachers were the lowest. Now, that is crazy. That is the mo- that, your job is the most important job. Well, a pilot's fairly important. You always think that when you're, when you're on the plane. But, you know, and I mean, it's quite hard to I think people would say looking of... after animals is very important. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they're anyway. all very... But, I mean, why? I think it's partly because it's often been a female profession. I mean, then I think you get into yeah. to gender, you know, and you look at the pay for early years. It's apps. It's the minimum wage. So, there's the, you know, that's longer term. We've got to start investing in the people who are creating of the f- citizens we've got of the time. future. We've got time for another... Hi. Um, it's quite a sort of unfashionable question in progressive Good. education circles. We like those. Um, so my mother taught in a fairly difficult comprehensive school on the west coast of Cumbria. The one thing that she always came back to as being a kind of fundamental problem that she faced as a teacher and that the students faced was discipline. And it's not something we've mentioned at all. Good, um, good. The teachers in the school had very limited options in terms of how they could discipline students and that it was really hard to do so if you didn't have the support of the families. I just wonder what your thoughts okay. were on what was how... your name? Lois. Lois. OK. I go and visit a lot of schools and, and what you notice are the schools where there is where there are positive relationships an interesting curriculum and engagement with the wider families tend to have less problems with discipline. And so, you know, I'm not... I just think to to say the answer is strict, 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 harder, harder exams, it clearly isn't the answer. You might be getting students to be obedient, but you're not then doing your deeper job as an educator. So I think there is a way through that, and I wonder whether your... It's Lois, isn't it? Whether your mother she taught presumably a while ago, whether she would find that a lot of schools would, were managing that through just a different approach. You know, I, 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 you see, I think the problem of discipline is so much about human engagement or the lack of it, and young people just not enjoying or liking what they're doing. We remember the teachers who were firm but fair. That's all it takes is, is empathy and being firm and fair and clear boundaries. And yet Michael Gove, and to be frank, that the academy system has now got this militaristic way of disciplining young people so that every half term, the first hour that you come into school in my school, you, we have practiced marching in silence around the school. We had six weeks where we were taught how to make sure that students are sitting up straight. This, this can't be right. You know, this is... This this is, not edu- this is not educating children, it's controlling them. And the children know that. They're like, Miss, this is a bit like a prison, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it is. I'm really sorry, but, you know, let's just do this and then we'll get into my classroom, close the door, and it will be okay, I promise. Of course you want an ordered classroom, but there is a difference between order and control as far as I see it. I want a t- yeah. t- 25, 25, 30 seconds from you each about a reason to be cheerful uh, in relation to this. Because it, we, we mustn't be doom and gloom. You've got lots of good ideas, but go on, give us a reason to be cheerful. I think we, we haven't been very doomy. No, no, you haven't. No. Um, I, I, I think we could do so much better, and I think it's really exciting if we think about how we can do so much better. And I, to me, I would love to be alive when we had a school system where everybody used really good well-resourced public schools, I think it would be amazing. And until we do, I don't think we can call ourselves a civilised society. Is that cheerful enough for you? Yeah. 
Uh, it's very straightforward for me. Um, we need a Corbyn-led Labour government um, as soon as possible because, like, you know, that, that manifesto is a programme for radical change. It includes education, but it includes addressing material inequality as well. And until we have that overall programme, we can't just tweak with our education system because it's going to remain. So I'm excited. I think, I think it's going to happen. Can we have a big round of applause for Melissa and Holly? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful Live at the Politics Festival, King's Place, London. Please welcome back to the stage Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are going to welcome out one of our top comedians. We're so delighted that she can join us tonight. It's Ashlyn B. I was um, earlier on when you said my name, I, some people went, yay, and then one person went, ah. <laughs> so I don't know where you are, but you're welcome. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's wonderful to, um, to reacquaint the two of you because you had a beautiful moment on television. We really did, uh, didn't we? We did. did you, will you ever forget that night? I won't. I mean, it did wonders for my credibility. I'm not, I'm not sure it was so great for yours, but I mean... Yeah, no, things haven't been great since. Yeah. <laughs> uh, works right up. We basically did the last leg, so you know that Channel 4 show. And um, at the end of it, we posed together on a motorbike and I wore a bra made out of uh, bacon butties. It was a good moment. Yeah. Yeah. Ashton, you've brought some ideas with you which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes, well, they're more big political ideas, thank you. I was very inspired by Melissa Benn, daughter of Tony, uh, earlier on and her ideas about education. And that's why um, my first idea is quite serious. Um, I, I think that we should use Love Island in schools. Um, and it should be used to illustrate uh, good behaviour and bad behaviour in relationships and because uh, you could use it then to sort of show you're looking at me going I know what Love Island yeah, is yeah exactly it's, um, Love Island is, is like musical chairs but instead of chairs there's 
genitals. Um, <laughs> and it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, post-Brexit uh, little uh, television show. Because I know lots of people are watching the football and football is a real skill. Uh, you know, because of all the kicking and stuff, that's difficult. <laughs> but there is something to be said for how important learning how to relate and be in relationships is. And why don't we teach that more in schools? I ask you, Jeff. What lessons does Love Island sort of... Basically, uh, loads of things are happening and you can be snobbish about the show if you want. And you can sort of say, oh God, it's just like vacuous people. But it, on it, they're left there in a sort of like scientific experiment, just having to sort of get together and and f- are forced to kind of stay in a relationship for two to three days, which is longer than money I've had. And <laughs> they have to learn to work stuff out, to talk about things, to chat to each other. And you find some people who naturally gravitate towards each other because of their personalities. Some people are kind of politically staying together for the wrong reasons. Other people... Politically as in their views on uh, like, you know... They're trying to get votes. So, yeah, right, they're trying to get votes, I but see. not... not their views on sort of trident or something yeah. like that. <laughs> no, it's not exactly that, right. but there are some bombshells in there, Ed. <laughs> there was a guy on it called Adam who was accused of gaslighting uh, the girl he was seeing. And now that was actually a very interesting way of showing what gaslighting is. So um, gaslighting is where you sort of um, start to make the person, it can happen in a workplace, it can happen in a, a relationship, you start to make the person think that they're crazy for what they know to be true. And this started happening with this guy, Adam, and like it divided opinions on whether it was happening or not. But it was a nice way of highlighting what was going on in a relationship. As I say, there's a lot of snobbishness about it, but you do actually see in a very simplified way and a very like easy to watch way a lot of stuff that's going on in relationships, what's healthy, what's not. And you could say, well, all of the relationships are for the camera but so many of our relationships are for our family or our group of friends or why do we stay with anyone and sometimes there'll just be that one group of people who'll have a spark and that's it there's so many reasons why you stay that's with me people. and jeff basically yeah. like you and jeff yeah, exactly. you know there's just nowhere else for you to go exactly. so you're stuck with each other <laughs> so are we having that then yeah yeah definitely yeah, okay yeah. we'll have love island in schools oh yes this one is in the same way like jury service i think uh, it would be a good idea if people randomly got selected to join talk therapy group therapy so you get a letter through your door and say tomorrow you have to be in Scunthorpe at nine uh, <laughs> to stand around in a circle with seven people you don't know and talk about your feelings people will be like no but then you'd be there going oh when my, when my dad left well I was sad and then someone else goes yeah okay clap 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 and gentlemen if you didn't talk about your feelings then you'd be arrested <laughs> that's something I'm passionate about <laughs> I went out with someone once who had no feelings and <laughs> he used to go to sleep and it was amazing to watch at night he slept and I was like but I haven't even talked about 17 of my feelings I've just had in the last minute and he'd just sleep so soundly because he had no feelings um, <laughs> but I think that would be an amazing idea if we were all forced to go into talk therapy Yes. And slowly but surely, we'd all like make community and, uh, connections, it, different age groups, interacting with different types of people, with different experiences. You want people mixing with other people. Yes, 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 yes. It's important for us to Jeff have to chat Jeff is very anti this. I mean, but Jeff, I'm very pro any, th- anything th- therapy orientated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the people thing has always put you off. Look, you're undermining a game. Okay, I, just, I just hope you go home. <laughs> Do you feel home this is tell... like couples therapy <laughs> really with is. you casting the role of therapist? Wait, yeah. Ed, let him finish. <laughs> let him finish. <laughs> um, so He's yes. excluded me from a WhatsApp group, by the way. What? 
You've he left well, basically, the WhatsApp he group. Me. Okay, one he second. Did you me. leave or were you pushed? No, he accused me. He thought he had like one up on me because he's always looking for one up on me. Like, for example, I didn't invite him to this lunch with George Ezra and he got very annoyed. <laughs> and basically he said to me, mm. I've got a bone to pick with you. No warning. The tape is running, right? I've got a bone to pick with you. You left the WhatsApp group. Basically, I was never in the fucking WhatsApp group. <laughs> And basically what he exposed was that he was that my colleagues had set up a WhatsApp group with him without me and he hadn't realised. <laughs> Ash- Ashlyn, uh, Ashlyn. And so then he accused me of leaving the WhatsApp group. Okay, Ed, I see what's going on here. I, see, I, I feel one moment, please, Jeff. I don't think this is about the WhatsApp group. <laughs> <laughs> what this is, is you guys, I think Jeff feels like you don't hang around together enough outside of work. Mm. and he needs you more as a real friend. And so the idea of the WhatsApp group was that you would leave potential socialising outside of work. Mm. He's looking for a real relationship with you, Ed, and that's what he's trying to offer. Now, what happened here is you were so het up about that, Jeff, Mm -hmm. that you didn't actually take a time to stop and examine the facts. Mm. So your emotions <laughs> took over. Can, can, I, can I give you the, the, the piece mm. of evidence that I, I presented, Edward? I think you should okay. respond to what Ashley, the deeper group, thing that Ashley is saying. Let group. him finish, Ed. <laughs> Let him finish. The words came up on my screen. Mm. Ed Miliband has left the group. That is a good indication that yeah. you <laughs> have left the group. But I was never in the group, you see. Yeah. Is that because you think cool-wise that you're not cool enough, Ed. That you don't feel like you're in the group and you're outside of the group. But yes. actually, you've always been in the group yes. and sometimes you just leave the group. I just didn't know I was in the group, you yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, I had yeah, the yeah. WhatsApp on my phone, yeah. but I never looked at the group. Yeah. And I think there were, people were very pleased that I hadn't looked at the group mm. because they thought it was easier without me being in the group. You yeah. See. This is about taking responsibility for adulthood then, isn't right. it? And taking charge of what's going on here. This I think is maybe all we should move on. Yeah. No, I'm not going anywhere. This is the best evening I've had in a long time. I love vulnerable men. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> this is the opposite to that boyfriend I had. Um, right. My third, just before this escalates uh, here, although I think you're both right. My uh, third one, this kind of leads on from the last idea, uh, is that online comments, when you go to make an online comment or send someone you don't know a message, that you need to have a witness to sign off on it before you're allowed to send it. And I actually think we'd all benefit from that. So before, you know, you start to go, you are dumb, you don't know anything, um, that someone would go, okay, so first of all, great. Um, how do we feel about using Y-O-U instead of just the U? We'll do a little spell check on it. Um, is it coming across in the best way possible? And someone to just sign off before you kind of are allowed to put your message up. It's, I mean, this is a that? Twitter thing, isn't it? It's Twitter. It's um, even for your emails. I, uh, my sister gets very annoyed. I like to put X's at the end of all of my emails, including ones to accountants. Because um, when I get an email through that has no X, like a, just a little, just, just tiny, at the end of things, I feel that's so stone cold. Mm. I think that is so stone cold. He is very withholding with those exes. Oh, this goes back to... <laughs> he just meters them out, rations what? them out. What? Why? Why won't you kiss... Why won't you kiss Jeff? He'll send just me, a, he'll send a, me a slew of messages with no kisses. <gasps> and then he'll send me a message at half past midnight saying, would you mind just going back and redoing that edit kiss? 
I can feel I'm being manipulated. So but I you like are it. using the kisses to manipulate Jeff in many ways. <laughs> you need to. You need to Who's show side that are love. You on? Or, well, uh, I'm on humanity's side. <laughs> <laughs> you need to put those little kisses in all, all the, the time. time. I mean, we might as well. We're in a safe space. Nobody's listening. What? Um, uh, you'd like more X's from me? Is what you're telling me? At the end, do you feel it warms up? Yeah, the or, messages or, or less Ed? inconsistency about the X's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would take an emoji. An appropriate mm. emoji would be right. fine too. Not but, the yeah. aubergine, Ed. You cannot. <laughs> the aubergine. I'm in favour of the witnesses. This is a modest. Oh yes, set. my idea. Yeah. Um, so if you were to say that to another person, they could say that's that's not appropriate to send. I think it's. Really or they might doing. be on board, but at least they'd spell check it. Someone just go. Is that what you want to do tonight? It's 1am. Are you sure you want to send that? <laughs> that might be nice to have a witness. Yeah. You're, um, you're, you're squirreled away writing at the moment. There's nothing in particular that we need to tell people to watch or listen to. Uh, or... Oh, at the end of August, I've got a Netflix, just 15 minutes, Netflix special coming out. What's on the Netflix special? What's on the Netflix special? Uh, what some people will describe as comedy, and I'm sure other people who won't have a witness to, uh, <laughs> will have other opinions. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, stand-up. Great. Uh, and then a couple of QIs and stuff like that for uh, a while. And I, I think that's all that's coming out. But yeah, I'm writing at the moment is what I'm doing. What are you writing or is it a secret? It's not a secret. It's a TV show for Channel 4. So it, it'll be out. Well, I'll film it in January. So that'll be uh, then. So hold tight, everyone. Write it down in your diaries. <laughs> the middle of next year. A cameo for Ed. How likely would that yes! be? Yes. Yeah. Dust off the motorbike. <laughs> yeah. You think you might be able to... Fit me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about Jeff? What about no, Jeff? No, no, no. <laughs> You're going in as well. You'll be uh, the couple who live next door. The hilarious <laughs> couple who I go around to get sugar from, and you're always topless. Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing it coming B, together. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And can we uh, also give a big round of applause and a thank you to Melissa Ben and Holly Rigby, who joined us earlier on? Thanks to Emma Caution for producing our podcast with backup and research from Alex Weiss-Price and Lindsay Todd, Ed Seed made our music, James Deacon made our idents, our announcer is Gail Lofthouse, and the artwork was designed by Emily Power. You really enjoy saying Emily Power's name. And you ran into Emily Power today. I think we should also thank the people who organised the Politics Festival. Uh, It's been an extraordinary array of people from John Major to Chukaramuna to Nick Clegg to us to Ashling B. Um, so big round of applause for them <laughs> so all that remains to say is he's been Ed Miliband he's been Jeff Lloyd <laughs> and these have been reasons to be therapeutic planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.